On the radio the other day, I heard something that I now can't unhear. And it said this. If you're unhappy at the state of the world or the state of your country or the state of your community, and that is absolutely true with how I'm feeling right now about all of those, it is one of the great expressions of privilege to throw up your hands and say, it's too hard, I opt out, I hope somebody else sorts this out for me. Now, when I heard that, I was provoked and irritated, but also encouraged by it. And I'm really thinking hard about what it means for me to be a more active part now of my community. I think the times are demanding that of me. How about for you? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Christine Porath is a professor at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. Now, she wrote a book called Mastering Civility, and her new book is Mastering Community. And, you know, I already love that connection between civility and community, how they feed each other. It feels like a Mobius loop somehow that they're connected. Christine's written for the Harvard Business Review, for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and more. But if she'd had her way when she was young, she'd have been a sports star. Loved sports. That was always a passion. I played college sports and ended up getting what I thought was my dream job working in sports management. But one of the things I failed to realize was that it was a really toxic environment. It's not always as the you know cliche goes, from a dream to a nightmare. But I really was curious to know if there was a moment of disillusionment when kind of the veil dropped and the reality of it all became clear. Probably the key moment was when the person whose name was on the sports academy came in early one morning. We were working out the um, the manager of the Performance Institute, like the gym basically, had would let us in early before 6 a.m. And so we'd show up when it was dark. And this guy came in and started screaming at him because uh, the music that he preferred was not on. And um, we were, we did not expect him. <laughs> you know, he wanted Barry White on. There was like kind of workout music on. <laughs> so he just got blasted. Now, I have to say, I do love Barry White, but still probably not for working out. And, you know, of course, that's not even the point. <laughs> What's clear is that this man's anger wasn't just a singularly bad moment, but it had much deeper implications for everyone for everything. Gosh, that one moment changed the complexion of people's days um, and really their attitude towards him and the organization as well, because it wasn't like anyone was protecting, you know, people from this kind of thing. So it's not about Barry White. It's about giving permission for a certain sort of behavior. And actually not just permission, but in some ways making it aspirational. I think what ended up happening, this gentleman came from the tennis world. And so in, in this case, the tennis instructors then, you know, role modeled what this guy was. He was a big right. name, you know. And so they would walk around the sports academy kind of flexing their muscles, so to speak, and, you know, going off on people this way because they saw themselves following him in his footsteps, you know, yeah. that that's the dream kind of, so to speak. And right. then you have, of course, other coaches from other areas thinking, who do they think they are? 
you know? And so, you know, not always, I think other sports were a little at the time, you know, better behaved because I don't think they had those role models, at least in this particular organization that they were interacting with on a daily basis. But yeah, I think it became, um, you know, we, we, see that in the data as well. Like when we say like, why, why do you behave this way? We all, you know, slip up from time to time and are rude or disrespectful. And I I was shocked because over 25% of the people said, because our leaders do like, Mm. we're just doing what we've learned. And so I think that, um, that's something that we all need to be aware of, but certainly if you're a leader, you're kind of always on, I feel like. And both with verbals in this particular case, this was something pretty egregious, pretty aggressive in my mind. But uh, I also think the nonverbals are important too. Um, And especially the world we're living in where so much is communicated, you know, over Zoom or or different ways. But I think, you know, it it matters how we're showing up. And uh, if you're a leader, all the more the case. But yeah, we do see, you know, you mentioned ripple effects. And I love that term because I think that's what we see in the data too, is like are these small interactions that we have with each other, asking how you are, how you can help, you know, acknowledging Mm -hmm. people, smiling. uh, They do kind of, we pass them forward in our social networks at work and both, and both positively and negatively. And so, you know, I think in some ways, I believe it's a really empowering message to others because, you know, it's easy to say, I can't do anything about it. You know, um, life is really ugly right now. You know, people yeah. are nasty. And I do think we have more control than we think. And, um, uh, you know, a good friend of mine who um, sadly passed away this year, but he's uh, he was a mental coach, uh, particularly on the sports side, Trevor Moad. And one of his famous sayings was control what you can control. And I think that, um, that, that is something that I hope is a kind of a motivating message for people, (laughs) especially in today's age. You know, Christine, I mean, talking about this, these stories, I mean, actually what comes to mind is the John Gottman work Mm -hmm. around, uh, relationships and, you know, actually the balance between positive and negative actions, verbal, nonverbal. Um, and he, I think he says it's, you need seven positive to one negative for a healthy relationship. I, I'm just wondering, you know, if, if that scales in some way to, to culture uh, and organizations, are, does that just make organizations fragile? I mean, if you need seven good things to balance one bad act. It feels right. like that things are at risk. Yeah. I mean, I think you're definitely correct about that. Um, the, the, the data that we have, so we've collected data around how energizing or de-energizing are mm. your, are people that you work with. And we find four to seven times the effect. So right. you know, pretty close, right? Yeah. And the psychology literature is pretty clear, like bad, stronger than good. And, mm. you know, roughly they say like the power of four, you know, yeah. that like you need to get over the four threshold. And so I, I do think that um, that could be a message that doesn't feel easy. But if you think about a lot of these things are very small, <laughs> you know, they can be, right. um, I mean, in today's world, we're not literally high-fiving each other. But, you know, like I said, the smile, the asking how you are, the acknowledging people, I can't tell you how often I hear from people 
that Mm -hmm. they even quit a job because a boss would blow by them in the hall without Mm -hmm. saying hello, without looking them in the eyes, you know, and they just felt like, come on, you know, (laughs) I mean, I'm, I'm working so hard. I'm working so many hours and yet I don't matter, you know? Mm. Um, and uh, you know, I've heard the same thing from, there was a resident, uh, you know, uh, that had worked on a surgical team for months and the next day he was, you know, moving on kind of doing another rotation and that, you know, top surgeon would blow by him without saying anything. And this, this guy's response was like, come on, I'm human, you know? And even if you don't call me by name, like I just (laughs) worked with you for months, um, saving people's lives and I don't matter that much, you know? And so I think in, in kind of a variety of different, uh, arenas and industries, I hear a similar message. And I think, you know, sadly, probably all the more so now where, for a lot of us, we've been pretty isolated, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think we probably crave that sense of connection even more. Uh, And the people that, that do those things, again, especially pulling back to leaders or coaches, I think that's a competitive advantage, you know, that can make a big difference. There's so much more to talk about here, Christine, but I'm going to ask you um, about your book that you've chosen to read. What, what have you picked for us? I chose uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. It is truly one of the seminal texts in this, uh, in this space, in this world. Um, how did it come into your life? It uh, came into my life. I read it a long time ago, and you know, I really liked it, uh, but I actually spent last several months, uh, since July, actually, until December, with UNC women's soccer team. And their coach, Anson Dorrance, who's won 22 national championships and led the Women's World Cup to a win in uh, the early days, you know, he actually has the players, uh, they have 13 core values, being positive is one of them, but he gets them, challenges them to memorize quotes for each value. Right. So it's more than just like the name itself. It's mm. he, 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 and there's some evidence behind this, but if you, you know, re- remember a quote, it takes a lot more meaning. It's kind of like the idea sure. of a story mattering more than just a right. word for a value right. in an organization. And so they're responsible. It's part of their <laughs> individual right. player meetings. You know, each year they memorize three or four and they recite them. And uh, I saw, it, you know, I went to all the practices, all the games, and I, I saw what a difference it made, actually. Mm. And uh, there was a former player, actually, that wrote him a text and was struggling, you know, with the coach in a, in a pro league. Uh, and she wrote the quote to him. And for her, it was really helpful in showing up in a way that she wanted to for her teammates, not just herself to get ahead. And I saw that happen also with injured players, you know, players that were out for the season, you know, Mm -hmm. after 15 minutes in a scrimmage, you know, or national team players that get hurt and, um, you know, can't start their college career. And how are they going to show up? And it, it was amazing to me what great examples there were of this. And, you know, I'm bringing this back to the sports world. And I know a lot of people are suffering in totally different and, you know, bigger ways uh, with health and everything else these days and death. But I just, for me, it came to life in terms of how helpful some of these things 
written so long ago, you know, um, and in because of such a different context can can be helpful. Um, And maybe learning quotes or hanging on to like small passages, you know, whether that's sticking that on a wall for you to see or um, a reminder, you know, kind of thing. Uh, But yeah, it really it brought it home for me in a way that. Uh, I could see how helpful it was and not just in the moment, but years later is these players encounter challenges, not only in their, you know, kind of professional career, but personal lives as well. Do you have any mantras or quotes that are particularly resonant for you that you've got written out or you kind of keep coming back to? I do. Uh, It is in the kitchen, but there's an Irish poem that talks about, you know, take time for this, take time Mm. for, um, you know, success, take time for hard work, take time for love, take time to laugh, take time for, and I just, it rounds it out. I mean, my mom gave it to me and it's something that, um, I moved it actually from my room to the kitchen, (laughs) just, you know, maybe that I was working from there for a while, but it just is a good reminder to me that, um, there are all these different aspects of your life, you know, and so showing up for not only to do the hard work, but for others and, you know, to enjoy certain aspects, Mm. I think, but I love it. I've given it to a lot of people and, um, it's just something that, you know, has served as a good reminder to me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I have um, a couple of lines from a poem by Rilke um, oh. called um, the "Man, Man, Man Watching." Yeah, um, and it's his. Uh, I'll get this slightly wrong, but the the final lines of the poem are: "His goal is not to win, but to be deeply defeated by ever greater things." Uh, and I love, uh, that. I love just how that speaks to a way of thinking about ambition, particularly, you know, I'm now in my fifties. So I'm like, I've, I've already climbed some hills. Yeah. Now how do I make sure that I'm climbing, you know, being deeply defeated by ever greater things? How do I hold my ambition at that level? That's, yeah. that's a really good resonant reminder for me. Yeah. I love if that. If I ever get selected for the UNC women's soccer team, that will be the quote <laughs> I'll be bringing into the, into the scrimmage. He will love it. He will love it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and how did you choose the two pages? Because it is a it's a book full of two pages that could be chosen. Yeah, well, part of it ties to the quote that they memorize. So right. um, I'm elaborating uh, from that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I just because again, I know from seeing it and you know seeing players you know pull it back years and in some cases decades later, yeah. it sticks. You know and. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I even thought of um, this morning as I was thinking about doing this, you know, there were poems that I went to a Catholic grade school and we would have to recite them. Like this was, you know, kind of part yeah. of the curriculum. And a lot of kids did. Shel Silverstein was very popular mm. at the time. Oh, yeah. His books. Yeah. yeah. And I loved hearing those things. But um, I just remember I chose one that was super long, but it was about University of Dayton where we lived at the time. There were three players. They ended up beating, I think they were number one at the time, DePaul in basketball. And it was just this really long poem. But at the time, you know, it meant something to me, right? So, but it's funny how we choose these things that kind of either provide good memories or guide Mm. us on a path that we, you know, can can use. I I mean, I love I love just this broad idea that values when they're written as a single word are often a bit abstract and a bit empty but finding a story to them or a poem or a way of kind of giving them color and depth immediately makes them 
more resonant and more real and, and stickier for people. So that's really powerful. Yeah. Um, but let, let's hear these two pages, Christine. Okay. I'm really excited to, to hear which ones you picked. So Christine Porath, who author of Mastering Community and Mastering Civility, reading from Viktor Frankl's classic Man's Search for Meaning. Christine. But what about human liberty? Is there no spiritual freedom in regard to behavior and reaction to any given surroundings? Is that theory true which would have us believe that man is no more than a product of many conditional and environmental factors, be they of a biological, psychological, or sociological nature? Is man but an accidental product of these? Most important, do the prisoners' reactions to the singular world of the concentration camp prove that man cannot escape the influences of his surroundings? Does man have no choice of action in the face of such circumstances? We can answer these questions from experience as well as on principle. The experiences of camp life show that man does have a choice of action. There were enough examples, often of a heroic nature, which proved that apathy could be overcome irritability suppressed. Man can preserve a vestige of spiritual freedom, of independence of mind, even in such terrible conditions of psychic and physical stress. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walk through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And there were always choices to make. Every day, every hour, offered the opportunity to make a decision, a decision which determined whether you would or would not submit to those powers which threatened to rob you of your very self, your inner freedom, which determined whether or not you would become the plaything of circumstance, renouncing freedom and dignity to become molded into the form of the typical inmate. Seen from this point of view, the mental reactions of the inmates of a concentration camp must seem more to us than the mere expression of certain physical and sociological conditions. Even though conditions such as a lack of sleep, insufficient food, and various mental stresses may suggest that the inmates were bound to react in certain ways, in the final analysis, it becomes clear that the sort of person the prisoner became was the result of an inner decision and not the result of camp influences alone. Fundamentally, therefore, any man can, even under such circumstances, decide what shall become of him, mentally and spiritually. He may retain his human dignity even in a concentration camp. Davinsky said once, there is only one thing that I dread, not to be worthy of my sufferings. These words frequently came to mind after I became acquainted with those martyrs whose behavior in camp, whose suffering and death bore witness to the fact that the last inner freedom cannot be lost. It can be said that they were worthy of their sufferings. The way they bore their suffering was a genuine inner achievement. It is the spiritual freedom which cannot be taken away that makes life meaningful and purposeful. An active life serves the purpose of giving man the opportunity to realize values and creative work while a passive life of enjoyment affords him the opportunity to obtain fulfillment in experiencing beauty, art, or nature. But there is also purpose in that life which is almost barren of both creation and enjoyment and which admits of but one possibility of high moral behavior, 
namely in man's attitude to his existence, an existence restricted by external forces. A creative life and a life of enjoyment are banned to him. But not only creativeness and enjoyment are meaningful. If there is a meaning in life at all, then there must be a meaning in suffering. Suffering is an ineradicable part of life, even as fate and death. Without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. The way in which a man accepts his fate and all the sufferings it entails, the way in which he takes up his cross, gives him ample opportunity, even under the most difficult circumstances, to add a deeper meaning to his life. It may remain brave, dignified, and unselfish. Or, in the bitter fight for self-preservation, he may forget his human dignity and become no more than an animal. Here lies the chance for a man either to make use of or to forgo the opportunities of attaining the moral values that the difficult situation may afford him, and this decides whether he is worthy of his sufferings or not. Thank you, Christine. That really is uh, you know, one of the, the, the best known of, those, of Viktor Frankl's work, and it's, it's such a resonant phrase and passage. Um, what particularly rings true for you in that? You know, I think nowadays it's um, easy to get down about life feeling hard or it mm. being uncertain about when, let's say, the end of the pandemic or when the end of a professional challenge is yeah. going to end. And I think uh, we're seeing now how important mindset is, <laughs> you know, yeah. to not only get through the day, let's say, or get through a season or get through the pandemic, but is going to be for moving forward because, you know, we don't know if something like this is going to happen again. Um, and I think it's, you know, important to kind of learn to set the tone for yourself to get through challenges, but mm -hmm. also, you know, having worked on this book recently and then again, being around a team and such kind of a shadowing experience, you realize just how much your small, you know, kind of feelings and mindset matter yeah. to those yeah. around you, literally on every day, you know, how you show up, you know, <laughs> what right. you're saying to your teammates next to you, how you yeah. set the tone, how when something doesn't go your way, you know, what's your response? And, and especially if you're verbal about it or, you know, literally you're picking some up from the ground or, you know, whatever. Yeah. yeah that that matters a lot and that's how people get through things you know kind of how he spoke about how you know other prisoners were giving away their last items or checking in on them or saying this is how you're going to get through it you know i think that we're in a time right now where most of us have an opportunity to be that person <laughs> you know I want to. I want to believe all of this, mm -hmm. and I'm just also more aware than ever of structural issues and yeah. privilege, and and you know I have all that. I have all the, or pretty much all the privilege cards dealt to me, and you know I just heard something the other day on the radio talking about people struggling with homelessness. Yeah, and um, and actually one of the things that you don't quite think about homelessness beyond the obvious around they, they don't have a place to, to stay mm -hmm. is the chronic lack of sleep. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that, you know, even if they have a shelter to go to overnight, you can't sleep safely in a shelter. You're protecting your stuff and you're protecting from physical assault and whatever else. And just how a chronic lack of sleep is such a diminishing 
thing to your capacity to rise to the moment, <laughs> to be the person who walks through the camp and gives thing, things away. I, I'm just curious to know your thoughts around, um, I guess, how much of this rests on us as kind of individuals, like rise to the challenge, you know, manage your mindset, be the strongest signal in the room that radiates the and sets a tone for how you want others to behave as well. And how much of it is, um, how much more it is accessible if you have certain luxuries and privileges of life? Yeah, well, I think it's, that's certainly true. And it's uh, good to bring up and remember, you know, especially if, if we are those that have privilege, like, yeah. what are we doing in service? And how are we giving back? And uh, you know, for me, um, one of the the great stories that I loved learning about, and Bob Sutton was actually the one that that turned me to the story uh, of hundred thousand, yeah, yeah, of a hundred thousand homes, um, which is part of the book. And I was just amazed at it, basically how Roseanne Haggerty is the is the person that has led uh, kind of this from her early twenties, but. Mm. You know, she's housed over 200,000 um, individuals that were homeless. And, yeah. you know, now what was really neat in updating the book, I learned that I knew she was a MacArthur grant winner and I saw 100 and change, like something had just been announced. Well, she won the single uh, $100 million grant from the MacArthur Foundation to work on homelessness. Um, wow. And so, you know, I think that someone like her in this story of how individuals, um, Becky uh, Margiata and Joe McCannon and others, nameless, you know, lots of others. I mean, cities would pull together. But yes. one of the neat things behind what Becky used in a number of these cities to kind of, you know, teach uh, others that were volunteering how to go about this is they did something where they would learn the people and their circumstances. So there mm. was a vulnerability index, like how were they vulnerable, but there were names and faces. So when they brought this back to the meetings with the cities and, and those yes. that were going to be helping, um, one of the things that I remember Joe McCannon saying is one of the things that was brilliant is that they put a name and a face and a story to who mm. these people were and what they needed. <laughs> and, right. you know, that helped change things. And, and that's not j the only answer, but um, I think we can get clues from the best practice of this 100,000 Homes campaign about how can we, you know, take some of these things and, and run with them, you know, and um, I, it's not going to solve all the systemic problems that are out there, but I also hope that some of the examples in the book, like, you know, Amy D'Ambra, who runs My Saint, My Hero, who's, you know, sees her business as a community and those yes. that are stakeholders in that community and um, the people doing the weaving of the bracelets and how it's lifting them out of poverty, let's say. And, you know, the bracelets that don't make it in, they give them to um, orphanages and other places where they can sell it and make money, right. you know, to help with supplies. And so I think, again, we see a ripple effect. And even mm. in more uh, tr maybe traditional, you know, businesses like Kim Malik with Salt and Straw Ice Cream, she has really done a ton of social justice issues with her yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. store and brand. And um, it's not something that we necessarily expect to see, but I intentionally pulled stories like that and people like that in because I do think that if we have examples like that, 
it yes. becomes more of a, a theme around this can be done. You know, um, one of the things that I was fortunate to be a part of very early on as I was just kind of graduating with my PhD is um, University of Michigan had this positive organizational scholars uh, group. And what they focus on is positive business leaders and right. the fact that like they're not mutually exclusive. Like you can, yeah. you know, in Kim Malik's words, it's like business can be a force for good, you know, yes. or communities can be a force for good. And so I think, you know, she had seen a movie that really brought this to light. And she had also worked at a um, for Starbucks, you know, as it was just starting out and saw some of the things that they were considering, like, you know, where are they buying the coffee from and, and just yes. different things that stuck with her. Yeah. And so I really love the idea of these aren't mutually exclusive, you know, that yeah. that leaders or businesses or, you know, in your example, people that can think about what can we also do for the community um, or for homeless people that are around our shop yeah. or our, you know, whatever. You know, the it, case. Yeah, me, it's, it's trying to navigate just my own moral compass mm -hmm. so this is the this is the way this plays out in my head for me i go look i love that idea of victor frankl's work and that existentialist stance which is you you have your circumstances but you always have choice because mm -hmm. that's the essential frankl message which is you get to choose your actions you get to choose what you do and, and not do and um the power of that and the freedom of that and so I go, well, look, I hope that if in tough circumstances, I would be that person. Right. <laughs> and I don't, I don't even know if that's true, but I have this fantasy and I project myself being, oh, I, would, I would certainly be noble and self-serving or well, not self-serving, but other serving. And, and then it means that when I walk past somebody who's homeless in Toronto, I have this subtle thing going, why aren't you making the choices that are in front of you? Why aren't you doing better? Why yeah. aren't you better? <laughs> I right. would be better if I was you. Why aren't you better? And so I get into this kind of moral conundrum, which is this is meant to be a call of freedom. And it's so slippery for me to quickly become um, a way that I raise myself and I put others down. Yeah. But anyway, this is, this is me wrestling with the, the, the some of the stuff. Yeah. I also think, you know, one of the ideas, and um, this also played into a core value at UNC, but you know, thinking about who you surround yourself with and, yes. you know, kind of their effect on your values and, and also the support you will get moving forward too. I mean, that was, but I, I do think that that plays such a role. And, mm -hmm. and when I hear that saying of, you know, you are the person that the five closest to you yeah. are, you know, or seven, um, you know, tightest connections, I think about that often. And I do think as I get older, I'm more aware of that probably, right. but I think I would teach that to kids, you know, <laughs> people as they move through school and as they decide where are they going to spend their time and energy, mm. they're thinking about that. Um, yeah. And I find myself, you know, on a daily basis, uh, I mean, some of it's included in the book as far as like the the leaders and my brother and the mighty yes. and just that the, the whole Great idea story. of um, kind of who's inspired me and how I think we can use mm. their examples to, to regardless of like what you want to get involved with, as you said, kind of how you want to live your life and the person that you want to be. Christine, what was most surprising for you in um, understanding what it takes to master community? Uh, 
Well, um, I think, you know, one of the things that I probably didn't end up thinking I would um, emphasize as much is just focusing on what we can do to control, like bringing our best selves to community. And Mm. so I think um, something that ties to the civility research is just a lack of self-awareness around, um, and this ties to the two pages, but the effect that we have on others and Mm. the idea that there are things like Tasha Yurik's work really speaks to, you know, Mm -hmm. 95% of people think they're (laughs) self-aware. Exactly. 95% of people think they're good drivers, better than average drivers. And I'm like, I'm not sure that works mathematically. (laughs) Right. And 10 to 15% of people are self-aware. And so, you know, 80% of us (laughs) are fooling ourselves on any given day. And I just think like, what does that mean to, you know, how we think we affect our communities. And so how do we begin to close the gap? You know, and I remember, you know, people that read the book and provided endorsements, like that was a, a chapter that they said, like they hadn't thought about or seen Mm -hmm. some of that stuff before. And so I, I think that if we focus on again, especially because we're very quick to point the finger at others, but we, if we would do a lot of good for ourselves as well as our communities, if we were able to get a better sense of our effects on others, you know, through greater self-awareness, because then we can begin to improve. Like, I don't think, you know, and this is one thing that I learned from the civility research. I think I started out thinking, gosh, there are a lot of jerks at work and we need to you know, change things. And instead the story really was, you know, these people don't have bad intentions. They don't feel good when they're hurting others for the most part, you know, 4% say they do. But um, the large portion of people like you're trying to do right uh, and you want to, you know, have a positive influence, but we may be doing subtle things that are really, you know, upsetting people or frustrating people or making them feel small. Uh, And so getting feedback on that, those things, can yep. be incredibly helpful for you uh, and for your communities. Yeah, it's like uh, there's there's nobody that thinks that they don't have a sense of humor, yeah. even though almost nobody laughs, laughs at any of my jokes. And I'm like, see, this is statistically impossible because I'm hilarious to everybody, surely. Mm-hmm. But um, it is an interest. So if you had to, what's the question I want to ask? I want to ask you this. What has been most powerful for you as a way of developing your own sense of self-awareness? Well, definitely seeking feedback from others. I mean, that's Mm. pretty general still, I would say. I I don't think I'm good at it. And based on um, Tasha's test, I'm not fantastic (laughs) at it either. so, yeah, but I know Tasha, you can't trust her test because <laughs> I'm not in that 15% either. So obviously the test is probably wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're actually collaborating on some research. And uh, the, the neat thing is how, again, leaders um, affect teams, you know, mm. and um, and that kind of thing. But, but I definitely think, um, I, you know, sitting down and asking people what you need right. to work on is helpful. And however you want to go about that, you know, she has that cool example of dinner of truth where, yes. you know, you sit down one-on-one with someone that you really like, you know, I mean, this is someone that you trust and, 
have counted on and and you ask them like what do i do that's most frustrating or annoying or you know that kind of thing and um you know it's amazing the stories that come from that and uh probably the thing that i've done since i teach and and um work with teams a lot with mbas or executives is i actually you know decades ago i i read somewhere but um teams work with each other, giving each other feedback. And at the time, you know, it was just an index card, three things about, you know, each specific teammate. And then so positive on the front that, mm. and, and three things that they could work on on the back. And then in a circle or, you know, they would focus on one person and all provide positive feedback and then, you know, constructive criticism or as Kim mm-hmm. Scott would say, radical candor. And, yeah. you know, I, I didn't know how it would go. I'm thinking, oh gosh, like the, they're going to hate this, you know, mm-hmm. but we're going to do it, you know, <laughs> and I tried to rally them and it was like the best thing ever. You know, I'll have executive groups that stay hours after the class and they say, yeah. it's just, you know, it changes them. And, um, you know, I didn't think that was going to be the case, but like, if we read what's out there, it should be because these are people that come from different cultures that have worked in different industries that, you know, um, in, in some cases they've worked together for a little bit and other cases they've worked pretty intensely on different projects, but it's, uh, the, the feedback can be transformative and what people don't realize is often it's positive, like meaning, you know, someone that received, I remember there was a, a woman who, was in a team and they told her, you don't speak up. Like we, we Mm. think you're really smart. We want to hear from you. You're, you have a very, you know, you won't participate basically. You need your voice. Yeah. yeah. And uh, certainly in larger classes, but even in team settings, you know, and part of this was tied to her culture. Um, but you know, I think like what she said to me was it was life-changing, you know, like she didn't expect that at all. She expected the opposite, which was, you know, right, right. So I think that, yeah, that feedback can be incredibly helpful in moving us particularly, forward. Particularly if you remember the four to one ratio. Like yeah. If I was setting this up, I'd have four <laughs> things to amplify the good and then one thing to look more deeply at. Yeah. Um, hey, Christine, as a, as a way of wrapping this up, because I know we're up against the clock a little bit, um, what's one thing that needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me? Well, I think the idea of just uh, really bringing your best self to your community and focusing mm-hmm. on your effect on others, you know, that that really is something that we can control in an right. uncertain time, in a, you know, perhaps like negative time or dark yeah. time in many of our lives and in um, the context of society. And so, you know, just just doing our best to be the example of change that we want uh, to see. Part of the magic of this series is discovering new books and having someone read, you know, the best two pages from something that I've never heard of before, never seen before. I I love that. I'm like, oh, tell me about this book. It sounds fantastic. But another moment of magic is when we revisit a book that's been read by another guest. And in fact, Man's Search for Meaning is now on, I think it's third reading. They've been different pages. But, you know, even if they were exactly the same two pages every time, a different reader, a different moment, a different life, and there's this way that an insight emerges that is both universal and deeply personal. Christine started the conversation with us talking about that moment in her first white, the Barry White moment, as we're now calling it. 
Here's an alternative story. The New Zealand All Blacks, and it pains me to say this because, you know, I'm Australian, so we have this long-standing rivalry with New Zealand, but still, you have to acknowledge greatness. The New Zealand All Blacks are the world's most winningest national sports team. They've won more than 80% of their rugby union matches, and that percentage is even higher if you look back over the last 20 or 30 years. <laughs> I know they've basically beaten Australia every time they've played Australia. Very irritating. They are, the All Blacks, utterly dominant. And the fundamental ethos is a deep humility and a sense that you need to give more to the All Blacks jersey than you take. You need to leave it in a better state than when you found it. And as a small example of a culture there, the antithesis of the Barry White dude, you know, the leaders of the team, the most senior players, the most experienced players, the most highly fated players are responsible for tidying up the changing rooms when people leave. I mean, this is servant leadership. And I think this is what Christine is talking about when she says, your small actions set the tone and shape the community that you're in. If you liked this conversation with Christine, I hope you did. Um, a couple of others from the archives I can suggest for you. Uh, my friend Pam Slim, uh, her, her conversation is called Hands and Feet Community. And um, I can also just recommend Pam's newest, newish book called The Widest Net. It's a really good read, particularly if you're in the world of, I guess, uh, marketing or business, and you're trying to figure out who do you serve, um, who, who's your ideal customer, but in a way that is much more holistic and less kind of marketing bro-ish than some of the stuff that is out there. Pam's a, a wonderful person. And Rachel Bossman is another conversation I had. She's based out in England super smart, charismatic, wonderful talker on trust. That's where she really dives into. And that talk with Rachel is called Humility and Trust. That was definitely one of my favorite ones. For more of Christine, you can find her at her website, christineporath.com. Porath is P-O-R-A-T-H.com. On Twitter, she's at PorathC, P-O-R-A-T-H-C. We always love people following us on Twitter. And she's also on LinkedIn as well. Her new book, as I said, is Mastering Community. I've got a copy. I encourage you to get your own copy as well. Um, if you're enjoying the podcast, thank you. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. Thank you for giving it a review, if you've given it a review. Thank you for passing the interview on. If they, I mean, if you know somebody who's thinking about civility, thinking about community, and this conversation struck a chord, it's just, it's just a great gift to me if you share this, this interview, and I appreciate that. We do have something called the Duke Humphreys Library, named after my favorite library at Oxford, which is kind of a free resource. It's some kind of sign-up membership thing. It's free, but um, you get uh, interviews that we haven't released, some videos, some other bits and pieces as well. So there we go. You're awesome, and you're doing great.